Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I have a great episode for you. My guest today is Molly Lynch, author of the debut novel, The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman. I think that a part of what I am really interested in with mothers and motherhood in this novel and and beyond it has to do with the role that you assume when you become a mother which is something that is kind of like historically and culturally invented and constructed. And there are all of these expectations on, on the, on you as a mother, you sort of like step into things that you didn't even realize you've been internalizing. All right. That was Molly Lynch. Her debut novel is called the forbidden territory of a terrifying woman out this week from catapult press. This is a very unique novel, a gripping debut with a terrific sense of almost Hitchcockian menace and anxiety to it. Part family story, part ecological horror story, the forbidden territory of a terrifying woman is a portrait of a world in which mothers are going missing. Women are vanishing one after the other without a trace, leaving their families to wonder what happened. In the novel, we meet a young family, a woman, her husband, and their young son, and we bear witness to what happens when the mother, Ada, vanishes from her bed one night. This book casts a really eerie spell. 
It has elements of the supernatural to it, but it is also grounded in the ordinary and the everyday, taking place in the upper Midwest, in Michigan, as well as in Montreal. This is a book about marriage and motherhood in a time of ecological collapse. I loved reading it, and I loved talking with Molly Lynch. This is her debut. She is originally from Canada and has also lived in Ireland, England, and Spain. She has her MFA from Johns Hopkins University, and she now teaches creative writing at the University of Michigan. I'm very pleased to have gotten the chance to speak with her as she makes this debut. Here she is, folks. This is Molly Lynch, and her new novel, One More Time, is called The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman. I certainly didn't intend to write a horror right within the horror genre, but I I see I see the way it's creepy, and I certainly see the way it's it's you know um, been made to you know with like through catapults rendering of the book and the kind of incredible artwork that well and listen so I think, the word the word terrifying is in the title so right true yeah sorry <laughs> yeah yeah. And I, I suppose that, you know, some of that creepiness for me is actually such a day-to-day part of, part of life in a world that is, you know, in so many ways not working, um, in a world in which we have, you know, this sort of foreshadowing, the constant foreshadowing of threatening scenarios playing out in, in the news. So, you know, in a certain way, I feel like yeah, how does that creepiness, how is that drawn into the making of this story? I mean, so much of it is sort of background, just the, I feel like the news just runs through the story. You know, she clicks on stories and hears NPR. And much of that is almost like, you know, just basic verbatim documentation of of what actually plays out, but how those, you know, when you think of those things, when you bring them together in a sort of collage form, they might begin to portray a more terrifying image of the world. But yeah, Ada as a character, she really experiences this steady, low grade feeling of dread, certainly through the the first part of the novel. Well, and let's, for listeners who might not have context, which is probably most listeners, Let's talk about what the conceit of this book is. It is about a world in which women start to disappear. Mothers, in particular, Mm -hmm. start to walk out inexplicably without a trace, and their families are left to wonder where they went. Mm -hmm. And some of them return. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very bare bones overview but i mean Mm -hmm. that's the that's the conceit you that's like the what do you call it that's the high concept idea of this novel is that Mm -hmm. something is causing women to walk away to disappear to vanish Mm -hmm. right that's right yeah and so i mean do you feel like you would like for me to speak about what i think is I want to know where that came from. Where that came from. Yeah, like Mm -hmm. creatively, like how did this occur to you? Like this Mm -hmm. idea, which is Mm -hmm. so central to the book and so central to the creepy effect that it has. Mm 
Mm-hmm. There's something scary about that. The idea of moms walking out, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, no doubt. There's something terrifying about it. And something very sort of upending of, you know, the civilization we live in. If mothers just quit, you know, or just really like took no no more responsibility for the creation, for the collective creation of the of our society, what might that cause us to, you know, in what ways might that cause us to think about the society that we're creating, the world that we're creating. So that is an interesting aspect to me of, of, you know, that conceit and of my choice to, to sort of delve into that, Um, as opposed to, you know, other directions I could have taken it. It, it did occur to me that this, it could be women who walk away. And that would be interesting in many ways, but I wasn't so interested in in just the gender, dyna, you know, binary. But I became really quite interested in imagining that, imagining this scenario. But your question about where this came from is, you know, so again, it comes back to it's 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 personal, you know, it comes back to a feeling that I was living with and that I continue to live with, in which of a feeling of really profound discomfort with the conditions of the world that I live in, that we live in. There are countless things that are sources of discomfort. And, you know, part of it for me is I have this bad habit of, of, you know, clicking on the Guardian app on my phone and, and just like scrolling through headlines in which it's on a daily basis. It's, it's truly, you know, just catastrophic things happening. And um, so, you know, paying attention to to the bad things that are happening in the world, um, thinking about them, trying to understand where they're going, trying to understand what that means for, you know, the future of one's own life, but not to mention the, the future of, of your child's life. That kind of sense of threat that is surrounding us despite being, you know, living in comfortable conditions. And so for me, the personal sort of background of of this conceit has to do with that feeling of, of sort of, of overwhelming discomfort with the world I was living in. It was the first year that Trump had been elected. There was that I began this novel. Um, The, you know, Western Canada, where I grew up, had just had its worst ever year of of forest fires that's now been exceeded, you know, and currently exceeded here on the East Coast. But, you know, there were so many things that were sources of, of real discomfort for me. But I moved at that time to, you know, this eminently comfortable town, Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan, which is this middle-class college town, very um, educated, liberal, a place in which comfort is on offer. And so that contrast for me, you know, of kind of questioning what is what is it that I'm aspiring toward here upon moving to this place? And and how do I reconcile that with with, you know, my feelings about larger, really pressing concerns in the world? Um, so that discord was something that I was personally experiencing this sort of vibe of like 
things not being harmonious. Yeah. And so then, you know, I began to imagine, I, I suppose I began to imagine or question, is there any alternative? Is there any out? I mean, that's a sort of question that sort of, I think, plays in all of our imaginations in different ways and times in our lives. But trying to sort of imagine that and, and the natural environment presenting itself to the imagined character who I kind of began to think through soon after I moved to Ann Arbor. That's really where it came from. And then sort of, I began to imagine her feeling something. And I began to question whether or not what she was feeling would be something that others were feeling. And very quickly, I felt like, yeah, for sure. Okay. There so would be others. Let's, let's, uh, let's drill down a little bit here for listeners and kind of maybe set up the cast of characters. We have Ada, who is the heroine, the central character of the novel. She is married to Danny, and they have a child, a son. And I'm, is it Giles? Like, what's the name? For- yeah, I, I realized I like really set my, <laughs> I gave that character a name that most non-French speaking or Canadians would um would. What's the two L's? It's G-I-L-L. Jill. Yes, yeah. I, so yeah, the French soft Jill. It's um, it's Jill. Jill. Okay. That's in my. But you can print. You can, you know. I didn't know if it, it was. That. I was want. thinking it was like an English thing, like Giles, right. but it's actually yeah, French. Yeah. So Jill. Okay. Yeah. So Danny, Ada, and Jill, and they are a lovely, young, like youngish family. I believe they're in their late thirties, but navigating all the stuff of middle age and uh, parenthood and and living in. I guess a variety of places, but it's like Ann Arbor, I believe is where Mm -hmm. Danny has a teaching job. And one of the dynamics of their relationship has to do with Ada constantly feeling like she should be someplace else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, should we live here? Should we be on the West coast of Canada and this kind of like, you know, serene natural environment sort of away from the chaos or do we go back to Montreal, which is the place I maybe feel most at home. And so she kind of always feels a sense, and I can relate to this. I, I think a lot of people are always thinking like, am I in the right place? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that's an aspect of it. And then as you say, she starts to feel this strange pull. It is so creepy to read. I don't know why, but it really made my skin crawl or gave me the chills, you know, where she will suddenly feel, I guess what you would call a pull when she's mm-hmm. in the in the forest in particular something about being in nature. And eventually this poll leads to her disappearance. I don't want to spoil too much for readers, but you got to kind of discuss, you got to discuss the poll and like what it is that causes these women to disappear. And Mm -hmm. there seems to be a through line from one disappearance to the next. It does seem to have something to do, like you, you keep saying with the natural world, right? Mm-hmm. I think that I, I, I see the women as having um, different reasons. Each of the women whose who's kind of like account we get later in the novel of, of what was going on for them, there's, there are different reasons. For her, there's this sort of this relationship with the natural world and this awareness of a kind of looming threat of, of the upheaval of the natural world through through climate 
crises. But for others, you know, the woman and the woman who she first notices who's vanished. Raven, Raven Wallace. Wallace. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are other social things going on. Uh, and, but some, in each case, there's some kind of sense of disharmony with, with the world around them. And so I wouldn't say that all of the women are thinking about the natural environment, but that is the, that is the aspect that gets really sort of amplified and that we get to really think about through Ada's personal experience. Um, but yeah, cause there are some other women in there, you know, Yasmin Urkel, the, the Muslim woman, woman who's living in Munich who, yeah, she has her own kind of discord with her social environment. There are different, different imagined causes in each case. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, and in the case of Ada, I mean, you were talking about this a bit ago, and you were kind of relating it to your own experience of being in this very comfortable middle-class college town that's very liberal and welcoming and sane, I guess, you know, as right. much as any place could be. But then having that be juxtaposed against the Guardian headlines and the news of environmental degradation and chaos and looming catastrophe. And the word that comes to mind as I think about this is anxiety. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a book about anxiety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the feeling that it evoked in me as a reader is it made me anxious. Uh, you know, to read it in that kind of horror film sort of way, but also I think in a deeper human way. And it brings to mind for me, this issue of paying attention to the news and having a sense of what's going on or trying to parse all of this stuff politically, environmentally, and otherwise, Mm -hmm. but also trying to maintain some court, you know, some sort of mental health. Mm -hmm. And it is weird to go from reading about how like the coral reef is now bleached and will be gone in 20 years to like making chocolate chip cookies in your like convection oven, (laughs) you know, like that that's like modern life, right? How do we, how do we balance these things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, I feel that, you know, suburban life is, is potentially like, you know, that eco horror when you, when you pay attention. But I'm glad that you say that this is about anxiety. I mean, I feel that in many ways, this novel is so much about a kind of her confrontation with her fears and with with her anxieties. And that theme of kind of living 
with low-grade dread, living with anxiety, living with that confusion of how to reconcile the bigger situation with, you know, your your personal life in which you're trying to just, you know, live a live a, you know, comfortable life. That is a theme in the lives of I mean all of my friends. Like that that, you know, anxiety issues, questions of like how and so much so for parents, the the fear issues. Like what does this mean for my child? What does that mean for my child? That's that's something that I feel is is really common and really a part of of the lives that we live in, you know, in a world in which we receive so much information, um, in a world that where we have, you know, news is the news does kind of play a large part. And so it's certainly that way for Ada, uh, that and that is a a part of her trajectory and a big part of her transformation in this novel, you know, how she comes to, uh, face the things in her imagination or actually kind of allow them to to not play so large you know not to sort of go into the ending of the book but I feel that that confrontation with fears you know there's a way of reading this novel as being a novel about that journey so I mean we're all anxious we all have anxiety do you feel like you have like more anxiety than most people when it comes to this stuff that you're tuned into these frequencies maybe more than the average person? <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think so. I feel that, you know, and certainly writing this novel was not that I, I'm not into writing for therapy purposes, um, but writing this novel did allow for me to, to confront some some larger existential questions. And so I have my own, you know, way of thinking about like, how is it that I get to sort of like come to terms, like in a certain way, become comfortable with a very uncomfortable world? Because I don't think I'm ever going to like see the world be like just harmonious. It's not going to happen in my life. I'm not going to see that. It's not going to be a harmonious place. And so I'm not, I can't live in a state of like hope for, for that to happen. And I am really interested, you know, your question is a, a personal one for me, but I am interested in thinking about like, how do you live in a universe essentially that is in which, that is very defined by, you know, random events, chaos. Like we just, we can't predict so many things. We can't control, like you really get confronted with this when you become a parent, how little you can control. There is, you know, and I think that that is a part of what like really transforms you when you become a parent is that you get sort of like humbled. You're just like, here I am, you know, needing to protect someone in a way that I've never needed to protect anything. And all of a sudden, I'm aware of all of the, you know, possible threats. And these are the small things of, you know, toxins and choking hazards and roads. And but then there are bigger ones, you know, bigger ones about, you know, how to protect them from from some of the major emotional challenges, from some of the psychological challenges. And 
you know, the question of like what the future is going to look like, that's just very, very hard for me to see. Well, I mean, if you place this in time, you said you started this book in 16, like right after Trump had been elected, Mm -hmm. 17. 17. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I think you have a a child, like one child. Mm -hmm. And you were, were you a new mother at the same time or close to it? I didn't have a child yet. Oh, you didn't? When I I wrote the first draft. So I... um, but maybe we're thinking about it. I was, and, uh, oh, yeah. I was fully thinking about it. Because so the reason yeah. I bring it up is because that's another thing that I felt in this book is that it's a, it's about anxiety and anxiety knows no gender. But it's also, I felt like maternal anxiety mm-hmm. about what it means to be a mother in this world and to bring a child into this world and to bear that weight. Mm-hmm. Like that's definitely what Ada is wrestling with. and. Mm-hmm. I mean, every parent wrestles with it, but it's more physical. It's more physically immediate for mothers, I think. And there's something, I think maybe women are just better at feeling things <laughs> than men sometimes. You know, I feel like, I don't know, I'm making generalizations, but mm-hmm. I just felt that, you know, and I sort of wondered about it uh, as it pertained to you. It sort of made sense mm-hmm. that you would be either a new mother or anticipating or contemplating motherhood. And that this particular story would have gotten its hooks into you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's interesting to think about the ways that fears and anxieties play out for mothers specifically. And, f- and I, I think that I don't know anything about the biology of that. People have told me things about, you know, that your brain changes when you become like a primary caregiver, you you know, and it, it actually like supposedly gets reduced in some way. Like you, you operate in the brainstem more fight flight. And I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, this is a novel in many ways about flight, bunch of women, mothers fleeing. But I think that a part of what I am really interested in with mothers and motherhood in this novel and, and beyond it has to do with the role that you assume when you become a mother, which is something that is kind of like historically and culturally invented and constructed. And there are all of these expectations on on the on you as a mother. You sort of like step into things that you didn't even realize you've been internalizing, like images of the right way to be a mother are, are there for you. And our society really kind of holds mothers to account in ways that are that are very different than than what fathers get you know and so fathers do you know abandon their children their families you know become creative geniuses despite you know to the detriment of of their children you know historically all the time or or just like walk away or be the the one who's out working Whereas women, you know, we, we are very familiar with that stigma of a woman leaving her, her child. It's like, it's, it remains the unthinkable. You know, we, it really is uh, a taboo. And can I just, I want to interrupt because I think this is one of the things that your novel does so well uh, on an imaginative level is that you really get into uh, illustrating on the page a very plausible outcome in terms of human response, governmental response, 
to these disappearances. Mothers start walking out on their families and the CIA is interested, you know, like mm-hmm. law, law enforcement is interested because of how disruptive it would be mm-hmm. to the societal contract or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like it could be, enor- this would be enormously disruptive if it were spreading, mm-hmm. if it were somehow contagious. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, when some mothers end up returning from wherever it is they went off to, there is pretty harsh blowback mm-hmm. and demonization of these women. How dare you walk out on your family, on your young children? You know, there's that. That feels very plausible to me, mm-hmm. you know? So it's one of the, like one of the other unsettling aspects, not only the disappearances, but what happens to society and how, how does society respond to this? Mm-hmm. And I would tend to agree. Like if dad started walking out mysteriously, there would be concern, maybe law enforcement would get involved, but it wouldn't be quite the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the sort of backlash or anger wouldn't necessarily be, be the thing. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all too easily imagine the sort of political responses, some of those political responses to this. I feel that the novel and the the story itself is doing something where it is actually trying to like hold up that, you know, we can think about, think about that taboo as being actually something that's not individualized. So if, if it were to happen on a large scale that, that women were to walk away from their children, it might cause us to think about the, the causes of that. Why? And, you know, why would that be happening? And to, to look at that bigger picture. And so I feel that the novel is, and the story in the novel is really trying to do that to sort of, rather than uh, stigmatize an individual mother or think about what that stigmatization might be, it it gets us to think about the the larger society. So there's something, uh, like other words that occurred to me or that I jotted down in my notes as I was reading this novel, uh, I found it to be psychedelic. I found it to be, like, and I, I say this word not really knowing much about it. I'm not good at, you know this particular subject matter, but it struck me as pagan, like witchy, you know? Right. Uh, also very sexual. Like this, uh, there's a lot of sex in this book. And is there? I think so. This married couple, I'm like, damn, these people, <laughs> they're into each other. But I felt that, you know, and I felt like that was somehow connected to the physicality of the book overall. You know, like you can feel the earthiness of it and this connection to our natural environment in ways that I won't fully spoil for listeners, but mm-hmm. it's all of those things. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then you start to think about the way that it, it sort of alludes to classical mythology and Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. And then I could also detect in yet another subject <laughs> at which I have very minimal expertise is uh, the feminist theory. Like, I think there's some of that interwoven into the text and there could be references uh, in there that I missed, but I definitely could sense some of that. Correct? I mean, am I am I on the right trail? Well, I mean, with feminist theory, like certainly nothing inserted in there or like intentionally trying to sort of like, uh, you know, allegorize some some theory at all. I mean, I'm, 
but I, yes, clearly this is a book about women and about mothers and we can read it through, uh, the, you know, a feminist theory kind of point of view, but I, I definitely didn't, wasn't like setting out to, to, you know, uphold some feminist theory here. It's just... or, to, or, to, or like you said, to allegorize mm-hmm. it. That makes me happy because I totally missed it if you had, and I was going to, you know, I was going to have you explain it to me, but even, even so it feels like it's embedded in there somewhere right. like subconsciously right. mm-hmm. and i'm wondering at which point i mean we've kind of gone through some of the paces in terms of how this thing came together where you start to imagine these disappearances and then some of the women returned i mean this is the sort of core conceit of the book at what point did you realize that it was creepy and eerie and, and like kind of had like a horror vibe like you, this had to occur to you. If it wasn't something that you set out with intentionally at the outset, at what point did you start to get creeped up by your own book? <laughs> or did you, you know? Yeah, it's funny because you're presuming I did. But I, I mean, I suppose, no, there were, no, there were, there were certainly times when I was being creeped out by it. Not as creeped out as the, as some of the things that are happening in the book I'm writing right now. But I think that, you know, some of the like major confrontation that happens in the end between Ada and that kind of natural environment space that she's being drawn to, that was where I had to become very clear with myself about what it was that was happening. And so I, and what, what choice she was making in, in the end. And I don't want to talk about that too much because I feel that those are the sort of like pivotal climactic scenes. Of course. Yeah. But I could go back a little bit to what you were saying about the the kind of like sexual aspect of the book, because I think that it's an interesting thing that I have, you know, having finished the book now n- noticed, actually. But in terms of her relationship with the natural environment and but I think that it it has become quite interesting to me to think about the different ways that nature plays out in, in this novel. And I, I think there are, you know, nature takes many forms on the whole, I would say the novel is actually trying to, and I, I feel that I have big questions about how, you know, any separation between ourselves and nature. Like I, I don't, think of nature as being some other space at all. Is this any, does this have anything to do with psychedelics? Like that's where my head was going as I was reading it. Is there anything psychedelic in this book's origins at all? But what do you mean? Like you take acid and think about this stuff? No, no, I was not on drugs when I wrote this book. I don't, I'm not saying that you were on drugs when you wrote it, but was there any inspiration? Like, did you have because I feel like there is something that happens on psychedelics when you are in a natural environment that feels like undeniably, uh, what's the word? It like it animates the life force of nature mm-hmm. in a way that is not evident in d- like ordinary day to day existence. Like trees breathing, <laughs> like the sense right. of like real connection. You know, that's what your book evoked for me. Right. And so, I mean, maybe this, there is some personal background there, which has to do with like the place that I grew up, which was like, I literally was in the middle of the woods for the first 12 years of my life, like deep in the woods with 
a waterfall behind my house, a creek running by it. And where was it this? was in in British Columbia, in in the mountains, sort of southern interior of British Columbia. And it's a real kind of hippie community, a draft dodger community. My parents were, well, my father, Irish, my mom from California, they went and did like a very back to the land thing, built our house in the middle of the woods. And I had, you know, two dogs and three sisters and we um, roamed around the forest and really uh, inhabited that space in a totally free way. And so maybe, you know, some of that, no doubt, some of that is like very, very much informing my You didn't need it. You had had a psychedelic childhood. You didn't need it. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I would say that um, in terms of like mind altering substances, no, like I don't have, that's not a part of what's informing my thoughts about, you know, those, those spaces of nature that I think I have had a lot of time in to sort of recognize for their for their own you know breathing living kind of powerful qualities and yeah i i think you know when you do spend a lot of time in natural environments you really kind of come to notice that you too are just an organism i mean really that there's not that we don't have this kind of there is no such hierarchy in nature in which people are the better of the beings, you know? Well, it's funny, as you talk, I'm thinking of a conversation I had not too long ago on this show with Emily St. John Mandel, also from BC, though I think more coastal, also Mm -hmm. from a kind of back to the lander childhood. Also in her novel, um, Sea of Tranquility, pivotal supernatural moment happening in a forest. She was raised in a forest. And I remembered speaking with her about this. And I seem to recall her talking about, you know, much as you uh, just described, spending a lot of time kind of on her own in the forest, having like what would be considered today, especially in the age of like helicopter parents and like drone surveillance cameras (laughs) and all this Mm -hmm. stuff, an unusual level of freedom. Uh, And also occasionally something a little eerie about right. being alone in the forest mm-hmm. i've felt that i think anybody who's deep in a in a wood by themselves has felt some degree of like is anything watching me like is am i being followed mm-hmm. you mean do you have some of that too from your childhood yeah um i mean i think i f- i f- do feel really quite comfortable in those spaces not at night um <laughs> But, or not, not deep out there all on my own. I did always have a couple of dogs nearby. So it made it, you know, put the fear of bears or something like that. Uh, Yeah, aside. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, that's probably something I actually totally take for granted. And so, and so what, so that's embedded in the novel. And that's like the undercurrent there that is actually for me, you know, that kind of like, a lot of what might come off as creepy in this novel, I, I'm I'm seeing as being kind of um, more just this kind of like organic phenomenon of, of being, you know, an organism. Yeah. But I don't think most people have that sense. I think maybe we know it intellectually, but it's just not foregrounded. It's not something that we live. Mm-hmm. It's something that we sort of intellectually understand. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that this novel 
is obviously taking its heroine into a real communication with that reality. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, just to go back to that, like the way that, because surely nature, natural environments play a huge role in this book. And I think that, you know, what that role is, it has a variety of, of faces. And so in the novel, we can see her relating to that environment in a number of different ways. We see her playing with her child there in a totally free kind of wild way in which the imagination gets to kind of really take hold. And in which, you know, I feel like what we get in those scenes is an encounter with imagine, you know, imagination and and sort of the possibility of imagining alternative lives just ever so subtly, but because there's something it's outside of the grown-up world. It's outside of the of the urban world when when she and her son, you know, play wildly together. And outside of those spaces, there's this feeling of like, what if? Like what can we what can we what can we play? What can we imagine? And so that like the natural environment as a place for imagining is is one that really manifests, I think, and, and very much through her child. But then there's also, you know, the natural environment as something threatening. And that's something that she's hearing about on the news, like almost this vengeful form that that it's taking as it looms over and, you know, and there's this, there are references to wildfires and references to major floods and the smoke from the West Coast fires is so much that it covers the skies in Michigan. And so nature as a kind of like threatening force is another face of nature in this novel. And then and then there's that kind of like lure, the pull and the sort of like seductive aspect of it. And the one that she becomes sort of, you know, tempted by. And so that and and then that's the one that she ultimately sort of confronts in the end. Like and and I feel it's one that I feel is that that confrontation became a very important one for for me in in you know thinking about where this story like how it plays out. And so you might feel tempted to just kind of like return to some natural way of living in which you merge with the natural environment in some way. But what that's at the cost of, you know, your, your, your human life, the, the one in which you, you have relationships and in which you have a world and kind of other challenges, which might feel hard, but are, are, are really important if you're going to keep those relationships. Yeah. You know, it's funny you talk about this, this pull that the forest has on Ada and, and how this pull is obviously related to her disappearance. The effect that it had on me and the way that it played for me as the reader of this novel was like a horror trope. Like, mm-hmm. don't go into the forest. Ada. <laughs> like right, right. Mm-hmm. she's like playing with her son and they're in the forest. And I'm like, don't go in. Like, it's kind of like the haunted house almost. Like, don't go mm-hmm. in there. You know, like that was the effect. I don't know. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like that was preconceived for you. Like you were mm-hmm. kind of seeing it that way. This was a, 
to use maybe like an apt uh, word, it was more organic for you, like mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. way that this narrative kind of came together. Did the notion that you were kind of using a horror, a horror trope ever occur to you? Only ever so slightly. That's yeah, so I mean, toward the end when she's like, she's on the mountain in Montreal and she starts to, she starts to feel it drawing her in i could feel the i could feel the horror vibe of that do you sure. do you watch yeah. horror movies do you are you into hitchcock like is there any of that in your dna only so slightly my very good friend panos cosmatos is a, a maker of of horror movies and has uh yeah but um so like through him i i think about horror but uh you know, I'm interested in, in horror as a genre and so much for the ways that it can, you know, so often it can be so absurd and it can really, in its best manifestations, it really casts a light on, on social phenomena that are really problematic. Yeah. Well, you know, I, and I think I, maybe especially like in contemporary times, like, like horror movies to, to good effect, I would say, have kind of moved more in that direction. Like they've mm -hmm. always done that, but it feels like, I don't know, that's kind of a trend. Like that, mm -hmm. that, that right. genre seems to be a space in which we deal with a lot of very important issues mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a way that maybe is palatable to large groups of people. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And maybe it's a trend um, because, because maybe we're, you know, maybe writers, filmmakers are no, are contending with and and noticing more issues i don't know i mean there's never been any period in history in which we've been uh yeah on, on top of, of our game free of horror right yeah. right right well one of the things i want to talk with you about that also you know gave me the creeps as i read this is the return of ada and the return of these women mm -hmm. there's something so haunting about this idea of like mom disappearing something primal about that no idea where she went the there's this heart these heartbreaking scenes where the son is like where's mom you know mm -hmm. like oh you know mm -hmm. as a parent you're just like oh you know like that sort of stuff is uh no fun to think about and then she comes back and suddenly just appears that's spooky even though it's great, it's like, oh, yay, she's back. But it's like, ooh, where was she? And she's naked, mm -hmm. you know? Like, the circumstances are, like, eerie. Like, these women are returning, like, found, like, walking nude on the side mm -hmm. of the road in the middle of winter or whatever it is. Do you have something mm -hmm. to add? Or, or Oh, no, but she's not naked. But well, that's all right. She's, like, you know, smelly Chicago Bulls hoodie. But it's Okay. Smelly. Well, isn't there but one yeah, woman you know. Isn't there one woman who's, like, forgive me for not remembering the, the details, but, like, I want to say there was one woman who was just found walking without yeah. clothes on the side of the yeah, road. Yeah, the opening scene. Yeah, but then he does, he he kind of goes into the bathrooms at, and, and pulls back the shower curtain because she's been standing in the shower for so long, and he suddenly is afraid that actually she's left again. Yeah. And, so then, yeah, there is a naked moment right then. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I should have remembered. But, you know, I think, like, the point is that the eeriness does not end with return because, or, or the anxiety does not end. Right. It actually mm -hmm. ratchets up because that's like, right. is she going to go away again? Did mm -hmm. something fundamental change within her during her disappearance? Is this the mm -hmm. same person 
that I knew who left, who has now returned, who can't remember where she was, has no real explanation for what happened. And then there's a great line from Ada in the book, because this is vexing for her too. It's not just vexing to her, her husband and her son and her you know, parents and extended family or whatever. She says, it's hard to explain to some people that you're doing better than ever after you messed up their life. Right. So her disappearance threw her son and her husband for a loop, obviously. And she gets back and she's in this state of limbo, not really knowing exactly what happened, but feeling pretty great. Mm-hmm. And everything's kind of off kilter because of that, you know, not just for them, but for the reader as well. You're sort of like, I don't know. Again, I was thinking of a horror movie. Is there like a, is she possessed? <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. know what was going to happen. It was really destabilizing. Yeah. And at that point, the point that she returns, we're in Danny's point of view. And so we don't get to be in her head. And so we don't get to know her thoughts at that point. And that felt really kind of important to me to have just structurally in the novel to have that outside encounter with her. And through his point of view, and which which has been so horrible, you know, he's just been put through the worst thing. And she's not forthcoming and she's and he doesn't know what to believe about what she says whether or not she remembers anything or not and and really the question of what happened is one that then I think the reader is really in the role of of imagining and that feels very important to me there so that you know that space for for the reader's kind of encounter with with that absence to to play out there yeah because I and that's that's something that you know as the writer I don't get to control I just get to like set it up leave it there and and then we can so feel the tension and and feel the and experience the questions of of what happened which feel to me to be like very important in in terms of the overall narrative and thinking about what what did happen and what is this about? What is this? What are these disappearances about? Well, I mean, that's got to be something that you had to work through as the writer. I I was asking myself, as I often do when I'm reading a novel, like, how is she going to land this plane? You know, mm-hmm. like, how are you going to take this premise and then like like resolve it? Mm-hmm. Uh, not a simple mm-hmm. task. Did you have an idea of that at the outset or was it something that you had to work toward? Yeah. I mean, I had, I had some ideas of the direction I was going, but then it became something that I had to really take a lot of care with, especially around the ambiguities. You know, I appreciate ambiguities in literature. I want for them to remain open enough uh, so that we you know, so that as readers, we can, we can think about the, you know, diverging possibilities that an ambiguity presents and, but not overly ambiguous. And so I, I feel that I, I present a sort of resolution in this story that we do get an explanation of, of what is happening to them. And, you know, in terms of the question of whether or not this is a supernatural phenomenon or whether or not it's a 
there's some explanation, some sort of psychological explanation for it. However, the the ultimate cause of a possible psychological explanation is one that I did not want to like nail down or name or say this is this was definitively what it was about because that's the space where I feel some of those those questions of like why is it that women might spontaneously begin to you know enter some fugue state and just like abandon their homes and lose their memories and not know what's happening what what in that what in the world might be causing this to me that again is a space where i want the reader to sort of like have to interrogate it themselves well there's a i want to say it was a duke research fellow or there's some academic who studies a phenomenon called ambulatory automatism right or dromomania mm-hmm. who appears in the book and so mm-hmm. this gets name checked in the text and i'm immediately going over to my phone to like wikipedia this it's a real thing Right. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. People do sometimes just spontaneously just start walking. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. You know, like, did you know that prior to writing this book? So I I had heard vaguely. And then while I was writing, I needed to go and look into what I had heard. Like it came back to me. And so this scholar, Ian Hacking, who I reference in the novel, he 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 wrote a history of... Uh, these events that happened in Europe in the sort of during the industrialization where men began to wander and, uh, and sort of lose their memories entirely. And they would be found far from home and with, without any, knowledge of of where they had come from. And so, yeah, so that was something I, I then wanted to sort of weave into this novel as, you know, for its its realism. And also uh, for its ambiguity, you know, mm-hmm. like as like, I, at least that was my experience as a reader. I was like, whoa, well, maybe there is like a scientific explanation for this. And, you know, there's something acutely sad and plausible like and even logical about, uh, I think as this uh, scholar laid out, you know, men during the industrial revolution who had previously lived like an agrarian existence or whatever, suddenly working like 14 hour days in a factory, mm-hmm. just like having a psychological break essentially, because mm-hmm. the changes to their existence were so profound mm-hmm. and onerous. And to then sort of fast forward and think about the kinds of changes that we might have to be dealing with environmentally mm-hmm. in the not too distant future. Mm-hmm. seems plausible to me that some people right. could just be like, you know what? I f- was formerly living, you know, whatever it is, uh, an existence where I was able to fish for my livelihood and my sustenance and live on this Island. And now I'm in a big city because my island went under the sea, you know, you can mm-hmm. start to think of scenarios where people mm-hmm. might be forced to shift so profoundly that it could be deeply destabilizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a sort of psychological displacement. Yeah. Just a, a loss of, a loss of place. And so, you know, having that be, having mothers be the ones that this happens to is, yeah, that became like, something that I could, that I could imagine because 
because of the way that mothering and motherhood and parenting is so future oriented, you know, it's so much about raising your child into a future. And when that future is very murky, when you're going, well, is this place going to be burned down? <laughs> is, you know, are the sea, where are the sea levels going to be? Like, I can't move to that city. That's going to be destroyed in 15 years. Like, can't raise my child there. Yeah. So that is, is very destabilizing for that, for that role, that particular role. And yeah, just to come back to that whole theme in the book, the, the motherhood theme, you know, I, I feel that mothers are figures in our society who are potentially, you know, going to relate to the threat of something like climate change in a, in a more acute way, possibly. I mean, certainly this novel is like, is playing, is, is proposing that because of the nature of that role. So, you know, if, if part of the role of being a mother is to sort of mitigate danger, then that particular danger, the danger of climate change, the threat of climate change is one that is going to create a, a unique relationship, you know, yeah, be the source of a uni unique relationship. So there is that section of the book where Ada is relating the story of Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and this experience that she had in Greece where she was on this hike and went down into this canyon and sort of felt a kind of spooky supernatural charge. Like she felt something but could not quite name it and then later learned about the history of this place and how all of these women had leapt to their deaths and thrown their babies to their deaths uh, because the village where they lived was being sacked or whatever it was. And I'm wondering, because this book has such a supernatural vibe and such like a spooky vibe, if you have ever had in your own life a supernatural experience or been in a situation where you felt like a charge like that, like, do you have any kind of connectivity in that sense? Because nothing like that ever happens to me. Like, I want to see a ghost. The ghosts yeah. don't want to see me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a ghost seer. Yeah. I wish I was. <laughs> Everyone's got these great stories. I'm like, when's this going to happen to me? I just feel left out, you know, but I got nothing. Yeah. I mean, I I um I feel interested in in people's ghost stories and in the kind of like I don't know, in some psychoanalysis of that kind of that sort of subjective state and and certainly interested in like what you know in in perspectives that that might be different than than what we might agree upon as being normal i don't know i mean but like human subjectivity is is so varied and so kind of not concrete and yeah i mean i'm i'm just very fascinated with human subjectivity and yeah, in all of its variety. But yeah, ghosts, supernatural. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not like a, someone who's thinking about that a huge amount, but it does play into this novel in so far as she feels this feeling in this place where she later learns that something happened. And that is something that she 
she then attributes some meaning to herself, even though she can't kind of name what that meaning is. When she's sitting at the dinner party and trying to tell the story, she gets flustered and and can't describe it clearly. And then she feels bad in some way for the way that she she told the story because it meant something to her, but it gets sort of reduced by to something less meaningful by that conversation. So you had a kind of peripatetic youth. Uh, you know, you've, you've lived in a lot of different places. Your bio interested me. I want to say it was like Ireland as a teenager, maybe England too. You lived in Manchester. You spent time in Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon, then went to Baltimore and got your MFA, and now you're in Ann Arbor. So you've bounced mm-hmm. around a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I've, I've spent time in various parts of the world, mostly in Canada and Ireland. And, but yeah, some of, I, I spent a couple of years working in Europe in some kind of random spots. I had an aunt, my aunt lives in Manchester. And so I stayed with her and worked in a factory there. It was a very formative experience. It was great. And then went to Spain and got a job in a bar in Malaga. As one does. And yeah, and didn't speak Spanish and had to learn some things. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, my time in the Middle East, that was really, that, that was a very important time for me in terms of, you know, shifting my perspective about where I came from and meeting people who, whose lives were just like, amazing and yeah i just made some very very important connections there in lebanon specifically i was gonna say and like syria doesn't seem like an easy place to travel i don't know what where you were in time when that happened but yeah i mean i was 19 when i went there so i think i you know i took the lead from my parents who had gone to traveling in in Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan and India in the 70s and were very much, you know, encouraging me to not feel that the world was a place I couldn't uh, visit, you know, that there were parts of the world that were would be closed off to me. So I went to Turkey and then while I was there, I, I literally looked at a map and was like, um, what's what's there? What's south of Turkey? What, what is Syria? Like I, I was so naive and so young and I, and so I went there on my own and yeah, I had an incredible time. This was obviously before the civil war and, but it was, I, yeah, I was incredibly lucky to have visited that like amazingly hospitable and beautiful country before, before it, began to become torn apart but it was yeah it was the the people that i encountered there were amazingly hospitable like i was very warmly welcomed wow that's lovely and like this earth these earthquakes and everything i mean on top of the civil war and all Mm -hmm. the you know difficulty Mm -hmm. that's been you know we talk about news stories that cause anxiety and are hard to deal with that was that's probably number one for me this year i right can't even it's like intolerable to read Mm -hmm. those stories or to watch like footage i know you're supposed to Mm -hmm. but i you know a lot of times i would have to turn away it was just too upsetting Mm -hmm. 
you know, all those, uh, like the recovery. I don't know. I don't know how much mm-hmm. of it you read, but it was heavy. <laughs> yeah, no, I was paying attention. Yeah, I was in Antalya and Antakya, a couple of those those towns in southern Turkey. Yeah. Well, I have enjoyed talking with you. Your book is uh, excellent and, you know, it just comes at you from a, a bit of an odd angle. I can't think of anything that I've read that's quite like it. You know, there's like, I know there's probably some corollaries out there, but I, I couldn't think of one off the top of my head. And I uh, commend you for writing it, like finding your way through it. I always ask people if they're working on anything else. And I think you mentioned earlier that you are. So can you give mm-hmm. us any hints as to what that one's about? I know you said mm-hmm. it's a little bit spooky too. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep it under wraps. Yeah, spooky, not so much in a supernatural way, but more in a um, interpersonal <laughs> kind of tensions uh yeah i won't speak about that at the moment superstitious well no just to you know keep it um just keep it keep it to myself for the time being okay i'm not i'm not close enough to the end right now to to talk about it fair enough fair enough um yeah but i'm glad that you feel the book is straight this this novel is is strange and not like other, you know, not easy to compare. Strange in a good way. Strange right. in a good way. And like mm-hmm. inventive creatively and like, like there's, you know, there's all this supernatural stuff going on. But again, it's happening to people and to people in a place that is all very recognizable and like ordinary. Mm-hmm. And I think that heightens the effect. But I just love it when there's something like really uh, like coolly imaginative happening in a text, but yet where it's grounded. Right. That's what's happening. So kudos to you. Uh, I wish you well in this crazy world that we live in. (laughs) Don't read too much news. (laughs) You know, I wish you you like moderate news intake, maybe no cable (laughs) news. I, I just, I'm trying to watch just the BBC, which I find maybe that's, I don't know, maybe people in England think the BBC is crazy, but to me, it seems eminently sane compared to the right. stuff that we get in the States. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't, I can't watch, I can't watch too much American news. Yeah. American news. I don't think people in America, that's why I think it's worth watching the BBC uh, because it brings into like stark relief just how nutty american cable news is in particular um so yeah no truly (laughs) yeah well i've loved talking with you i appreciate you giving me the time i wish you well on this mysterious spooky interpersonal novel that you're working on and uh i just you know i hope it goes well thank you so much okay you guys there we have it that was my conversation with molly lynch Her debut novel is called The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman, out this week on Catapult Press. You can find Molly on the internet. Her website is mollylynch.ca. You can also follow her on Twitter at The Minch. That's M-Y-N-C-H. One more time, the novel is called The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive is made available to listeners. 
without any obstruction. So if you had a good experience, if you would like to support the work that I do, I would deeply appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can sign up for my once a week email newsletter at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, please rate this podcast wherever you listen. If it's possible to write a review, please write a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. You can watch my interview with Molly Lynch. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to advertise on this podcast, go to the show's official website, otherppl.com, and look for the media kit. It's all right there. If you have feedback for me, the email address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, I have a novel out. My latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you would like to check out my latest novel, one more time, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Friday, I will have for you a new flashback episode. I've been doing flashbacks on Fridays where I dig into the archives. And then coming up on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Alejandra Oliva, author of a remarkable new book called Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration. So a lot of good stuff in store. Stay tuned.